Welcome to the sermons and teachings from the Catalyst Fellowship with Ipai Michael. We hope the message you're about to listen to will edify you and cause you to experience exponential growth. And now, the message. Alright, so the gospel is so simple that a child can understand it. Yet it is so profound that you would spend a lifetime exploring and experiencing its fullness. All right. So the gospel is the central theme of the Bible. And I've taught you before that the gospel is is a compendium of the plan, the provision, and the announcement of salvation. It means that the central theme, as important as the Bible is, it has its central theme on salvation. The gospel. So we see in the Old Testament, God planned, he showed his plan. He sent prophecies about it. In the gospel, we see Christ come into the scene and implement it. And then in the epistles, we see the apostles announce it. That's how important it is. That's the full breakdown of the Bible. The gospel is that one simple, most important message in the world. And it solves a problem that no one had a solution to. And that's why you cannot minor on it. In the last teaching I said, you know, in the body of Christ today, we minor on the things that should be major than we major on the things that are not even as important. The gospel is so important. It has to be emphasized over and over and over again. If we do an exercise now and I ask you, what is the gospel? Not many people can tell me in a single sentence what the gospel is. You have to understand the gospel. It has to be the central theme of every local church or or every local assembly. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, scripture says, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is what? It is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone that believes, it says to the Jews first and also to the Greek. So it's so important, it is God's power to save. This is important. And that's why I taught you that it's a paradox to say there are believers who don't understand the gospel. Those two things should not be in the same statement because it's the gospel that gets you saved in the first place. So how are there believers that don't understand the gospel? Do you get what I'm saying? This is important. And I taught you that you don't get saved by being born in a Christian home. It's not passport. It's not citizenship. You don't, you don't get saved by having a prayerful mother or prayerful father. You're not even a Christian because your dad is a great man of God. There is a message you must know and believe to be saved. And it is, this is why we're teaching what we're teaching. So that when it comes to the question of your salvation, or when it comes to the idea of salvation, there is no question. Hallelujah. And so I have titled this part of our Didasco series, The Good News. And this is the second part. In the Greek New Testament, the gospel is the translation of the Greek noun, wagelion. I spell that E-U-A-N-G-E-L-I-O-N. Wagelion. And that noun is used about 76 times in the New Testament to mean good news. Good news. Wangelion. It also means glad tiding. 
It has a verb form called wajelizo that occurs about 54 times. Well, that shows you its importance. It means to announce good news. And so if everything we spoke about in the last teaching sounds so sad, don't worry, there's good news. <laughs> Hallelujah. There's good news. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 8 and verse 26. Acts chapter 8 and verse 26. So Philip encounters a eunuch who happens to be reading Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 7 to 8. And now the eunuch is reading a text that says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearer is dumb. And so he opened not his mouth. Verse 8 of Isaiah chapter 53 says, He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. Now, do you know was reading this? And Philip ran to him and heard him read. And he was like, do you understand what you are reading? Remember what I told you before? Okay, maybe I didn't say it before. But anyways, Philip ran to him and he's like, do you understand what you're reading? And then in verse 34, the Enoch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom is the prophet speaking of? When he started to say he was led, you know, he was led, you know, as a lamb to the slaughter. I said, who is he talking about? Explain to me. And then in verse 35, scripture says, Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture. So Philip took that Old Testament text. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says he preached who? Jesus. He preached Jesus. Philip preaches to him about Jesus. And this is a perfect picture of the good news being shared. This is a eunuch. For those of you who don't know what that means, eunuchs are great men who have been castrated. Usually in the past, they are employed for, you know, trusted servitude in royal, royal households, you know. But he had been castrated. And it's usually because of their loyalty and how committed they are and how wise they are, you know. And so this guy was a eunuch of the high court, you know, and of the queen of Ethiopia. And he was in Israel to worship the Lord. And he's like, he's reading the Old Testament. And Philip is like, do you understand what you're reading? He's like, how would I understand unless someone teaches me? Are you with me? And then Philip gives him the good news. Listen, I taught you last week about the problem. God is holy. God is just. He punishes evil. And Adam sinned, and because of Adam's sin, death reigned on all mankind. We were separated from God, and there is punishment. And we see the wrath of God as God's holy reaction towards sin. God is holy. He's unique. He's perfect. He's endlessly perfect, so he cannot have all sin. He can't have sin. And now, because of Adam's action, man is separated from God. Sin brought about that separation. And in God's holiness and in God's justice, he has to punish sin. Now the eunuch is reading and Philip is telling him about Jesus. He's giving him a good news. That somebody is going to be slaughtered. And let me not go ahead of myself. Listen, we've seen that there is a problem. There is sin, there is death, there is separation. Mankind owes a debt he cannot pay. Because the Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. And I gave you an analogy in the last meeting. 
that if everyone in a class has their name taken down for an offense, and another student who is guilty comes and says, you know what, um, sir, I want to take their place. I'm sure the teacher is not going to agree because that's not possible. You are also guilty, so they'll join him and they'll punish all of them together. But if someone who, doesn't, who is not guilty of any offense comes and says, I want to take their place, maybe a student who has no record of shortcoming, then he can take their place. And this helps you understand the utter helplessness of man. That man could not help himself because man himself carried sin. So man cannot die for his own sin. He can't be a substitute for his own sin. Are you getting this? We could not pay for our sin. And that's why we needed an intervention. Are you listening to me? And so even if man tries, man cannot help himself. Works cannot save you. The wage of sin is debt. So debt had to be the payment. If you aren't on the first teaching, make sure you you find time to listen to it. It should be uploaded on the podcast link soon. So that followed. We see that there is a sinful nature. We see man is always leading to sin. A sinful nature had been given to man. As a result of Adam's sin, death had entered into the world. Condemnation had followed. Man was always leading to sin. Remember in the time of Noah, Do you know what it takes for a man to be building an ark as big as what Noah built, that that built, sorry, that will take all the animals and yet you did not believe him and yet you continued in your evil ways. We know about what scripture says about the people in this time, how perverse they were. Look at Abraham's time as well. In Sodom and Gomorrah, to the extent that, you know, an angel came and men wanted to sleep with the angel. How bad can you be? Isn't that sad? (laughs) Later, he had to say, I'll give you my daughter. And Abraham is saying, Lord, would you destroy Sodom and Gomorrah if you find 50 righteous people? And the Lord says, no. And Abraham is begging again, how about 45? How about 30? How about 20? So in a whole city, they could not find even five righteous men. The funniest part is that righteousness in that time didn't even have to be by the law because, you know, the law was not given. It just had to be by believing, you know. Abraham believed and was counted to him as righteousness. So I strongly believe that if God had found even one person who believed in him in that city, he would have saved the city. That's how perverse man had become. And man is. You see the evil things that had happened. And now Philip is giving the utopian eunuch a good news. Something that God had planned. Something that we begin to see the hints of it in the Old Testament. Are you following me? And in Bible interpretation, one important thing you must know is that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So many of the things that were shadowed in the Old Testament, God revealed in the New Testament. Are you getting it? 
And that's why when we say the Bible is a progressive thing, is a progressive book, we're not talking about newer revelations coming. We're talking about the fact that things that we are hidden are later revealed. Are you getting it? And so what Isaiah was prophesying was God showing man his plan. It was God showing man the good news, a solution to the problem. Sin has come. Condemnation has come. The sinful nature exists. What is the solution? And the Bible says, Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture, an Old Testament text, and preached unto him who? Jesus. Are you getting what I'm teaching you? He preached to him who? Jesus. Many of the things that we do not understand, you know, now, when we read the Bible, they were not new to the Jews. When you study scriptures very well, you understand that the Jews had the promise of a savior. They had the promise of a Messiah. They had an idea that there was going to be a solution. God began to show it to them. And the title that we use for Jesus, when we call him the Christ, what was not part of his name. Some of you think Jesus is his name and Christ is his son name. No. Christ is the title for the Savior which they were expecting. The word Christ comes from the Greek word Christos. And that Greek word means anointed. Is the equivalent of the Hebrew word. So you know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and you know, in Aramaic, while the New Testament was written in what? In Greek, right? So the word Christos in the New Testament, when you check in the Greek, in, in the Hebrew rather, the translation in the Old Testament, is the word Mashiach, where you get Messiah from. Are you getting it? Mashiach. And so the word Christ is a title for the anointed one of God. So when you say Jesus the Christ, it means you're saying Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the anointed one. Are you getting what I'm saying now? So it wasn't just a title. And when they received, you know, when they read scriptures for them, these things made sense to them even more than many of us today. Because even though prophets and priests were anointed, the phrase anointed one was often used to refer to a king. But they also recognized it for the anointed one of God. Let me give you an example. In Psalms, 1 Samuel, sorry, chapter 24 and verse 6. 1 Samuel chapter 24 and 6 and verse 6. I've done a very extensive teaching on this before. Um, if you go on the podcast, there's a sermon called Understanding the Gospel, I think part two. If you listen to it, I did an extensive explanation on this. I'm not going to do all of that today. I'm just going to touch a few parts of it. So go listen to that sermon. It's important. All right. First Samuel chapter 24 and verse 6. The Bible says, And he came unto his men, comma, and he says, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing unto my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing that he's anointed of God. Now, this was who? Who is speaking here? David. About who? About who? Saul, right? Yes. So he didn't want to kill Saul. So he says, you know, far be it from me that I should do this thing against, you know, to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, that is Mashiach, to stretch forth against him since he is the Lord's anointed. 
Are you getting it? So it was, it was, it was a title used for the anointed one of the Lord. But more specifically, it was used to refer to someone special to the Jews. So throughout the Old Testament, we see hints and prophecies that God will send a great king to Israel who will someday rule. In Genesis, when Jacob blesses each of his sons and foretells his future, he says of Judah in Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. Genesis chapter 49 verse 10. He says, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is he. Now, this is one of the first hints that we see that they were expecting a great king to arise out of Israel who will be king forever. Are you getting this? When you read this today, you might not quickly understand. But when you look closely, you must understand that Jacob is blessing his son. He might not have even known what he was prophesying. But he's saying, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. So there's someone they are expecting. It says, and the obedience of the nation is his. Let me show you another place. One of the clearest prophecies about, about this comes from King, um, King David's time, right? And David honestly desired, desired to build a temple, you know, a house for God. And God responded that his son Solomon will be the one to build the temple. And then God went on to promise that, you know what, you know, I'll build a house. Are you listening to me? Okay, so God went on to, to, to speak to David and tell him that, you know what, I will establish your family line after you. And he promised, you know, that from David's family will come the king whose kingdom has no end. This is a prophecy, this is a popular prophecy in the Old Testament. You know that, Abi? About a king, you know, whose kingdom will know no end. So if you go to Chronicles chapter 17 and verse 11, scripture is saying, you know, scripture says here, when your days are over and you go to be with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, when, they, when you read this, you probably think, yes, Solomon, his offspring, right? But verse 12 goes ahead and says, he is the one who will build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. So you begin to think, establish his throne forever. But Solomon's throne was not established forever. Are you getting this? Then 13, he goes and he says, I will be his father and he will be my son. I will never take my love away from him as I took it away from your predecessors. I will set him over my house and my kingdom forever. Now you begin to question, did he set Solomon over his kingdom forever? No. It says, and his throne will be established forever. Are you getting this? So this has to make you think that who then is God talking about in these prophecies? And this is one of those prophecies which had double fulfillment because Solomon came and Solomon built the temple. Are you with me? But this is important because you have to realize that even the temple that Solomon built, and I don't want to go ahead of myself, God did not dwell in it. So then you realize that God has other plans for one of David's son. 
getting this? And this is why it was important for Matthew in his gospel to prove the genealogy of Christ. You know that part of the New Testament you read when you get to Matthew that you don't read actually, that you just skip, 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 then you start. Where he says this begat, this, this, this. There's a reason. Because Matthew was writing to the Jews and he needed to prove to them that Jesus is the one that was promised in the prophecies. Are you with me? That this Jesus that is with us, he's the son of David. Because the Bible tells us here that God already said that I will raise someone that is your offspring. Hey, are you getting this? It has to be your offspring. So Matthew proved that genealogy to show that Jesus is the son of David. Are you getting it? So yes, they were expecting a savior and a king. A Messiah who would bring God's kingdom to the earth. But not just that. In Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 1. And this is a long read. Isaiah chapter 51. Sorry, 53 and verse 1 to 12. It's a long read and I want you to pay attention. Verse 1, Isaiah 53, 1. It says... Who had believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. And then there's a colon. And then it says, he had no form nor comeliness. So you're like, okay, now we're talking about a person. It says, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Then verse three says, now, when you read this, don't think, this is just a novel. This is a prophecy, you know, right? This is a prophecy. So imagine someone wakes up and says, Thus says the Lord that starts to say all these things. So pay attention. It's a prophecy. Verse 3 says, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. And we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised. And we esteemed him not. Surely he had borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. In verse 5, I want everybody to read wherever you are. No need to omit your mic. Just read 1, 2, go. Verse 5. It says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. And the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are what? Healed. So listen. When you read this normally, you might not properly get, but you understand that the guys who heard this prophecy obviously knew now that God is telling them that somebody is going to be wounded for their transgression. Someone is going to be bruised for their iniquity. That is now God is telling them that because of your sin, I'm going to send somebody. Somebody is going to what? Be bruised. It says, by his stripes, we are healed. And for those of you that quote this for healing, even though God can heal you, the actual context of this is salvation. Are you getting what I'm saying? By his stripes, we are healed. In verse 6, for clarity, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. All we like sheep, have gone astray. He says, we have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this is where we get the idea of substitution from. 
Are you getting this? Now we see God saying that there has to be a substitution. Remember my analogy, and I'm taking my time to explain so you understand. The only person that can take your place is someone who was not guilty of anything in the first place. And now God is telling you, in a prophecy now, you're seeing. He says, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 7, he says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before a share as his dumb, he opened not his mouth. Verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. Who shall declare his generation? So listen, the verse 7 and verse 8 that Philip was talking about to the Ethiopian eunuch, this is where he got it from. Are you getting this? So verse 8, he says, and he was taken from prison and judgment. Who shall declare his generation? He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. I wish I could read everything. You know what? Let's read it. It's, it's good for us to read it so you know it. All right. Verse 9. He made his grave with the wicked. And with the rich he made his what? His death. Oh my God, I wish I could begin to explain to you the fulfillment of all of these texts, but it would take a lot of time. Let me just help you. Almost everything that Jesus did was prophesied, you know? He says he made his grave with wicked. He was killed between two thieves in the end. Do you remember? And then with the rich, his death. Remember that someone also took his body and buried him in a rich man's tomb. Anyways, let's go on. He says, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. And then he says, yet he pleased the Lord to bruise him. He says, he had put him to grief when thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin. And he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and, pleasure the, and, pre and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his ends. Anyway, so yes. Now this prophecy makes you understand that the guys in the Old Testament, obviously, were expecting a savior. So yes, there was a king they were expecting, but also they were expecting somebody who was going to be a substitute for their sin. Remember, mankind owed a debt he couldn't pay. And here is a prophecy of somebody who is going to pay a debt he didn't owe. Are you getting this? Now God is saying... Somebody would pay on your behalf. Somebody would what? Would pay on your behalf. This is important. Very important. Immediately you read it, you think Jesus. But they at that time were thinking there is a servant of God that is coming. There's also a king of God that is coming, that a king that would reign that is coming. And that's why the apostles had to take their time to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. You have to understand. That's the way that the works of Jesus will be taken as Jesus being the chosen one. It pleased God to, bru to bruise him. Are you getting it? This is important. And we also have to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It made sense to the Jews because... At age six, the average Jewish child has probably memorized the whole of the Old, the, the whole of the Old Testament. And so they knew and expected the Messiah, even though their hard times started making them think like he was going to save them from economic issues. Ideally, he's going to save them from what? 
from their iniquities. And after that, his kingdom would be all around the earth and he would reign. And so when Jesus came to be baptized of John in Mark chapter 1 and verse 9, it says, And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in Jordan. And straightway coming out of the water, he saw the heavens open and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. Now verse 11 says something important. It says, And there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And you read this and you might just hear God approving Jesus and his teaching ministry. Yes, he was doing that. But the average Jew who grew up learning the Old Testament and the prophecies would hear this and think differently. Why? If God says this is my beloved son, he raises a question in your mind. Beloved son, the only time God ever said he had a son was in Chronicles. Remember what we read? He says, I will be his father and he will be my son. Do you remember? So where is God having a child from? So if God says this guy is his son, then my mind easily goes to the fact that maybe this is the king that God said is coming, that would reign forever. Are you getting it? That's why people in those days both had a problem and also did not have a problem with Jesus being the son of God. The reason is this. They had a problem with him claiming he is the son of God and God's anointed because they didn't believe Jesus was the son. But their issue was not how can God have a son? Are you getting this? The prophecy already showed them that God has a son. God would have a son in that time. God said, I'll be his father. He'll be my son. What they had issue was, you know, was reconciling that Jesus is that son. Are you getting this? And so when he says, this is my beloved son, their mind goes to the prophecy. God is going to send his son. His son is going to rule. And yes, they thought he was coming to overthrow the Roman, you know, um, rule because they were, they were being, you know, colonized by the Romans at the time. So the economy was tough. They were paying heavy taxes. But he also says, in whom I'm well pleased. And this might make you think that God was happy with him. But when you also consider scriptures, you know, and texts like Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 1, when scripture says, behold, my servants, whom I, am, whom I uphold, my elect." In whom my soul delighted. So this is the delight of God. He says, I've put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. He says, my soul delights. And we know this is Jesus because in the latter parts of that text, in verse 6 of Isaiah 42, he says, I have called thee righteous and I will withhold your hand and keep thee and I will give you for a covenant for the people and be a light to Gentile. Remember who the light to the Gentile is Jesus, right? Exactly. So we know that this is talking about Jesus. So, in that single line, I hope I'm not too fast. All right. All right. And so in that single line of, of text, you have to see that their mind goes to scriptures. This is my beloved son. Oh, God, you are attesting to the fact that this is the person you sent. In whom I'm well pleased. So he's the one that he pleased you to bruise. Are you getting this? 
He's the one that your soul delights in. And so not only was Jesus coming to be a substitute for their sin, he was also now going to reign forever. And now in this text, it merges both of the assignments in the prophecies you see, right? The king who is coming to rule forever and who? The servant who is coming to die in place of, of, of God's children. Are you getting this? And so God's plan was that in Jesus, our salvation will come. And after salvation comes, after Jesus becomes a payment for your sin, a propitiation, he will now rule forever on the throne of his father. And that's why the apostle went around telling the world that Jesus is the Christ. You have to believe. You know, some Jews today don't believe that the Messiah has, have, has come. Who's... Whose um, background is that? Please meet your call if there's noise. You know, some Jews today don't believe that the Messiah has come. Do you know that? Some Jews are still expecting the Messiah. And the implication of that is that it means that our sins are not gone. Are you getting it? That's why the apostles took their time. Hey, this is why this message is important. You have to know. This is why the apostles took their time to show you that Jesus is the Messiah. Telling the world that Jesus is the Christ and salvation has come. That's why Jesus himself went around saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's what Philip was telling the Ethiopian eunuch as well. That the Messiah, that's why when he, when he taught him about it, he didn't teach him about the Messiah, he taught him about Jesus. Because Jesus is the Messiah. It says he preached Jesus to him. So that which was prophesied is now fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus the Christ. That's why Paul can now say that yes, all have seen and come short of the glory of God, which I read to you, but 24, it says, being justified freely by his grace through what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus the redemption that is in who? The Messiah, the anointed one of God, Jesus, whom God has set forth to be what? Propitiation, that is payment. True faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sin. God set him to be what? Payment. He was bruised. He went through all of that to what? To be a substitute. The wage of sin is what? Death. So it was only by death that we'll be redeemed. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 14, which we also read, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the similitude of Adam's transgression, who is the figure of him which was to come. But 15 says, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead, much more the grace of God and gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ. Jesus the Messiah had abounded unto many. So yes, sin came by Adam. But now righteousness and the free gift of grace is going to come through who? Jesus the Messiah. Do you understand this? So Christ, Jesus, is the Savior and the Messiah. 
and also the Lord that would reign forever. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9 that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I've come to realize that many people don't know the comparison between believing in the death of Jesus Christ for their salvation and understanding his resurrection. You have to understand that for him to reign forever, he has to resurrect. Do you understand? He has to resurrect. That's why the apostles spent a lot of their time in Acts witnessing. What were they witnessing? That this same Jesus whom you crucified, his reason. Listen, in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, Scripture says, But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Judea and Samaria. In what? To the uttermost part of the earth. In, Jeru in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Our emphasis many times when we read that text is what? We shall be what? You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Mm -hmm. So, you receive power when the Holy Ghost comes. But there's something else. It says you will be witnesses. Yes, sir. You'll be witnesses. And you have to understand, you are not a witness, you know that. You can try your best to put the facts together. But a witness has to be someone who was there when something happened. You can't go to court and, and they say, let's call on the witness. And they say, who killed him? You say, I'm a witness. I say, how do you know? You say, he sure me die. Now, my friend, I have the facts. You're not a witness by that. You only witness by being there. And so, that's why the apostles could call themselves what? Witnesses. But what was so important that needed witnessing? If you go further, when you read Acts chapter 2 and verse 32, Paul says, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we are all what? Witnesses. Acts 2.32 This Jesus had God raised up. Whereof we are all what? Witnesses. They witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. Let me show you the pretext. Peter was preaching here after the Spirit came upon them, you know, in the upper room. And he spoke of what he witnessed. Right? Go to Acts chapter 2 and verse 29. The Jews had always expected, yes, the Messiah is going to come, you know, and all of that. But you have to understand that if he resurrected then they will believe him as the Christ. So look at Peter's argument in Acts chapter 2 and verse 29. It's a long read as well, but follow me. It says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely unto you about the patriarch David. He is both what? Dead and buried. And his sepulchre, burial ground, is with us until this day. That is, we know where he is buried. Paul is so funny. Like, like guy, like his his approach. I said Paul rather, Peter, his approach. I feel like almost all the disciples had like a particular way of speaking that silences you. And it's, I'm sure it's because Jesus gave them beyond reasonable doubts, proof. So they could come from any angle. Look at his angle. He's saying, I know where we know where David is buried. Therefore, being a prophet. And knowing that God gave an oath to him that out of his loin, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on his throne. 
And he, seeing this before, spoke of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell. Now, in hell. Now, Peter is quoting a text in Psalms here that, listen, David said in Psalm 16, verse 10, Thou will not leave my soul in hell, neither will thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. And Peter is saying, hey, you people, yes, David said that, but his burial ground is with us. That means he was not talking about himself. Are you getting this? A lot of people seem confused. Are you getting what I'm saying? Let's read it together. It says, Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loin, according to the flesh, he will raise up Christ to sit on his throne. 13, he says, He seen this before, spoke of the resurrection of, of, of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. This was where he was quoting Psalms. He says, This Jesus had God raised up, whereof what? We are all witnesses. So he just made an argument here that when David said in Psalm 16 that he will not leave my soul to see hell, neither will he suffer his holy, holy one, the Messiah, to see corruption. He says, if David couldn't have been talking about himself. David is dead. He has seen corruption. He now says, this Jesus. Remember when he was saying that he did not say Jesus, he said the Christ. He said he spoke about the Christ. Now, at the end of the statement, he now says, this Jesus. Are you seeing it? In verse 31, when he was talking, he says, he's seen this before speak of the resurrection of the Christ. Then in the end, in verse 32, he says, this Jesus had God raised up whereof we are all witnesses. His argument there was to prove to them that Jesus is the Christ. Are you getting what I'm saying? He was witnessing of the death and resurrection of Christ. Remember, Christ is from the line of David as well. He had to mention. So Jesus died and took the punishment of sin. But not just that, he resurrected never to die again. And the witness of his resurrection, this is the way that they will be sure that he's the Messiah. Let's see other places where they witnessed. Go to Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. And verse 12. Acts chapter 3 and verse 12. I hope your hand is not paining you. People that are writing. All right. Acts chapter 3 and verse 12. After healing the layman at the view gate, Peter speaking in verse 12, he says, And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel. So they came and they were, you know, discussing about what they had seen. And he says, Why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us, as though by our own power or by our own holiness we had made this man walk? He says, The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, had done what? Had glorified his son who? Jesus, whom you had delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. He says, but you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a moderate to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life whom God had raised up from the dead whereof we are what? Witnesses. Do you see that every opportunity they had 
They spoke about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And to prove to people that Jesus is the Messiah. He gets why. Tell your neighbor, he gets why. You know, many people don't have neighbors, but they don't have a get why. <laughs> don't worry, I know this kind of teaching. You need to write and focus. No play. People are telling me P might continue. They play too much. Is that what God said you to do? Don't worry, I'll continue. <laughs> now he went on preaching. And I think in, in the latter part, I want to show you something in verse 18 of that text. Now, I think at this time they were people gathered in Solomon's porch, you know. And so he started to preach in verse 18. It says, But those things which God before had had shewed by the mouth of all his prophets. So listen, it says, Those things which God had shewed by the mouth of who? Remember what we started with the prophecies, right? By the mouth of all the prophecies, that what Christ should suffer, he hath done what? Hey, now are you getting this? Please don't sleep in this teaching. Are you getting this? The things that were prophesied of Jesus, they have what? They've been fulfilled. Then 19, he cannot tell them, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. It says, when the time of refreshing shall come for, from the presence of the Lord and he shall send Jesus Christ, Jesus the Christ, which before was preached to you, whom the heaven must receive until this time of restitution, which God has spoken by the mouth of, all his, of his holy prophets, of his holy prophets. Now listen, you can actively see him saying that Jesus is the man the prophets prophesied about. Look at verse 20. It says, For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall die. This is a sermon. Are you seeing the way they preached? This is a sermon. Are you seeing the way they preached? They brought Old Testament text. They brought New Testament. Listen. He said, Moses said truly unto the... You know this was the pattern of preaching in the New Testament. Look at Stephen. Stephen told them all their history. <laughs> this was the pattern of preaching. So some of you that think, oh, why are they always carrying us through a lot of... We've not started. This is the pattern. It says, for Moses truly said unto the fathers... You know, the first thing that marveled me about scripture so much that I opened my mouth was when I read Acts. Between Acts 1 and 8, between Acts chapter 1 and Acts chapter 8, they reference Old Testament more than 10 times. More than 10 times. And I was like, this is, this is a good approach to teaching. Let me get distracted. It says, Moses truly said unto, unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you from your brethren, like unto me. Him shall you hear in all things whatever he shall say unto you. It says, And it shall come to pass, every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be what? Destroyed from among the people. This makes you understand that, listen, Jesus is your only hope. If you don't accept him, you shall be what? Alright? Let's go on. <laughs> it says, Shall be destroyed. From amongst the people. It says, Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, likewise foretold of these days. It says, Yea, are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed 
shall all thy kindreds of the earth be blessed unto you first God. So now he's making another argument that when God spoke to Abraham, that in your seed shall all the nations of the world be blessed, he was talking about Jesus as well. Are we reading the same Bible? Then he says, unto you first, meaning, remember I've taught you before, to the Jews first, then the Gentiles. God chose in his sovereign power that salvation should come to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles. That's why Jesus is called light the Gentiles, because without Jesus, man, Gentiles will refuse. You understand? <laughs> salvation was only promised to the Jews first, but uh, to the Gentiles after. All right. He says, having raised up his son, now Peter now clears it. He says, having raised up his son, Jesus sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from his iniquity. So the only way your sin is taken away from you is in who? Is in Jesus. And Jesus had to die and resurrect. Are you getting this? So to call themselves witnesses, it means they experienced it. They experienced the death and the resurrect of the resurrection. This was what convinced them that Jesus is that man who the savior of the world. Let me show you another thing. Oh my God. I thought I was going to finish this teaching so fast. I was telling you this day before the police that. It's short. Don't you think I should add more? <laughs> Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1 and verse 1 to 3. Now, Acts is usually said, and I think it is, I know it is actually. Acts is, you know, the second part of Luke's full writing called Luke Acts, right? And this time it's addressed to Theophilus, you know, and... Luke was a companion of Paul. So he did this writing. He did the writing you know, of, um, of um, Luke and Acts. And in verse 1 of Acts, it says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began to do, sorry, began both to do and to teach. So he said, I've written, to, I've written before of all Jesus began to do and to teach. He says, until the day in which he was taken up, after that, he through the Holy Ghost had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Verse 3 says, to whom also he shielded himself alive after his passion, which we will discuss in the next teaching. That is after his sufferings. By many what? Infallible proofs. It says, being seen of them what? 40 days. And speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God, so Jesus showed himself alive by many infallible proofs after his death. Listen, uh, Luke, is, Luke was an eyewitness account, and yet he could say with his mouth. Luke's writings, you know, Luke was more of an eyewitness, he was more of Paul's follower. Are you with me? So for him to document this, you have to understand that, you know, he was more of an account of all of the things that happened that he puts together. And for him to say infallible proof, then he says, was seen of them 40 days teaching. They had no doubt that Jesus was risen. And if there's no doubt that Jesus was risen, there is no doubt that Jesus is the son the scriptures prophesied about. And so I'm not waiting for the Messiah. The Messiah has come. He has died for my sins. Do you get this? The apostles were, were not men of extraordinary faith. But something must have happened. Listen, before he died, <laughs> when he was talking to them, 
When they arrested him, all of them ran away. The one that had not run away safe. At least he was there. He denied him. That was even somewhere that they could find him to deny the rest. <laughs> but he would have taken an undoubtable experience to get these men to give their lives to witness about what they had experienced. Listen, after the death of Jesus Christ, these guys witnessed, people that were scared and ran away, came back and some of them gave their life without recanting their experience that Jesus is risen. They must have experienced it. Do you get what I'm saying? It must have been true. What would make men like that come back so bold? They must have experienced it. One of the disciples said, we have seen, we have seen the Lord. But he said unto him, that was Thomas. Thomas spoke unto him and said, except I see in his hand the print of the nails and I put my finger into his side, I will not believe. That's where the apostles were. He had to take something solid to get people who were this scared to now boldly proclaim Jesus. After Thomas saw him, what was his response? My Lord and my God. There was no argument of the deity and the sonship of Jesus in his mind. There was no argument that he was the son of God. Are you listening to me? No argument. He saw him and he said, my Lord and my God. So the resurrection of Jesus confirms to them that all, as all the prophets have spoken about Jesus, about the Christ is fulfilled in Jesus. It confirms Jesus both as the suffering servant, which we saw in Isaiah, which would be a substitute for their sin, and the messianic king, which we saw in Chronicles, who would reign forever. Are you getting it? By the virtue of the resurrection, Jesus has been exalted and is at the right hand of God as the messianic head of the new Israel. What do I mean by that? The new Israel, the people who are chosen. The people who by faith believe in Jesus Christ and are saved. And Jesus has become the head of that new Israel. In Acts chapter 2 verse 32, it says, God has raised Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it. He says, exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promise of the, the promised Holy Spirit and had poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God had made this Jesus whom you crucify, both what? Lord and Messiah. Did you read what I just read? Both what? Lord and Messiah. If Jesus did not die, then our sins are not forgiven. No one has substituted. But he was the lamb God accepted for our sin. If he did not resurrect, then he's not the king forever. But his resurrection also allowed for the Holy Ghost to come and live inside of us as temples. Listen, I told you that after man sinned, he was separated from God. And he had to die physically without any assurance of what will happen to him after. But the same problem is now solved in Jesus. And the resurrection of Christ brings an answer to what will happen after we die. And I'll explain this in the next teaching. So two questions we would answer in the next teaching. Is did Jesus really die? And did Jesus really resurrect? 
I've done a little bit of it in this teaching, but we'll go a little bit deeper in the next teaching because you have to understand that a claim against the death of Jesus is a claim against your salvation. A claim against the resurrection of Jesus is a claim against your eternal life. And any claim against both the resurrection of Jesus and his death is a claim that Jesus is not the savior that scriptures prophesied. Some of you didn't know that this was a problem before. Well, now you know. So have you learned something? Are you excited about the next teaching? Sure. All right, just begin to pray. And just I just want you to genuinely, there's, there's something that teachings like this must do for you. And one of the most important things it must do for you is when it comes to your devotion. How thankful are you to God for what he did? God is a master planner. Scripture tells us that, you know, the devil didn't understand what he was doing. What they thought was for evil. God had a different plan. Are you with me? God had a different plan. They thought they were doing good when they killed the Lord of glory. They didn't know that they were fulfilling God's plan. I want you to just thank God. God, you are genius. Thank you for this plan. Thank you for my salvation. Thank you for Jesus and his death on the cross. Thank you. Thank you for fulfilling your plan in making him the suffering servants to die for my sin. My substitute. And yet, you made him king to reign forever. Can you just thank God? By his stripes, I'm healed. I'm saved by his stripes. By his transgression, he pleased you. He pleased you. Can you just pray? Are you praying wherever you are?